This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Over the past 18 months, infectious disease experts around the world have been thrust into the limelight to offer their advice to governments and the public on managing COVID-19. It's this expert advice that has helped us all navigate these uncertain times. My guest today is a leading Australian expert who has played an important role in shaping how Australians understand the pandemic. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Professor Raina McIntyre, one of the world's emerging infectious disease experts and the head of the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute. Professor McIntyre shares with us more about her career in STEM and what the past 18 months have been like for her as she has been continually called upon by the media to share her thoughts. I'd like to start off the podcast today by acknowledging that we are both on land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I today am on Cameragle land and I pay my respects on behalf of both of us to Elders past, present and emerging and I thank them for their ongoing custodianship of this land and how they've looked after it and cared for it for millennia. Raina, are you in Sydney today? Are you on Gadigal land? I am. I'm on Gadigal land in the Eora Nation. Nice. We pay our respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging as well. Raina, hello. It's so great to have you on the podcast today. Hi, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. You have been everywhere, I think, in the last 18 months. I've seen your name pop up in so many interviews. And I think for many people, you became the face of comfort during the COVID pandemic. You know, having experts tell us what was right or wrong or how we could do things better. As we speak, we're in the middle of another lockdown. Students are going to start learning um, remotely again today and tomorrow. Is this the way you think it's going to be for the next decade, two decades as we go ahead? We never had a lockdown pandemic during my lifetime. Are we going to have more? Um, I don't think you can say never, but, you know, vaccination really is our exit strategy and we're seeing countries around the world opening up and enjoying more freedom with very high levels of population vaccination. So that's what we need to be aiming for. Having said that, you know, there's these variants of concern keep emerging faster than we can keep track of them. And there's always a possibility of new variants that'll be more vaccine resistant than the ones we've seen. And of course, new viruses or re-emerging viruses that cause pandemics in the future. On in this podcast, we're looking at ways to lead for the next decade, different ways of doing things. And in the last 18 months, I think it's fair to say that Every company around the world has had to look at different ways of doing things, employees working from home, schools doing studies online. For you, looking back at the last 18 months, what are the biggest lessons do you think we as a community, as a nation, have learned? I think we've learned that we have to acknowledge the, the potential of pandemics to be catastrophic events. They are natural disasters And I think until now, we'd seen a lot of very fixed views on pandemic preparedness where, you know, for example, there was this thing called the Global Health Security Index, which wasn't a bad way of measuring risk for pandemic preparedness, but it failed to consider a couple of important uh, variables. 
and ranked the United States number one in terms of pandemic preparedness, but that's not the way things panned out last year. And, you know, I think there's a whole global health sector that has thrived on, you know, the great white saviors, you know, helping low-income countries and little brown people, basically, which, uh, you know, was out of its comfort zone for most of last year. Because instead of, you know, being the benevolent white saviours, many of these people were fighting the battle on their own home ground and unable to control the pandemic, while small Pacific islands like Samoa did really well by closing their border. Countries like Vietnam did very well. And we saw kind of a reversal in that geopolitical dynamic, which was interesting. And this year, of course, with the vaccines, then we see the inequity of access and the fact that wealthy countries, except for Australia, of course, um, have been able to uh, get rapid access to vaccines and vaccinate their populations. And the countries that haven't have had uh, more catastrophic epidemics this year with the variants of concern, many of most of those low income countries. And so, you know, the global health uh, crowd is back in comfortable territory. So that's been interesting. And that, of course, is not over, is it? Because a lot of those developing nations still can't get vaccines and they're relying on the more developed nations to actually share their load or their um, supply of vaccinations with them. Yeah, and we we also see the geopolitical manoeuvrings for power with the two biggest powers, I suppose, China and the United States, both doing their bit to try and supply low-income countries with vaccines. So the Chinese have you know, provided their vaccines to many low-income countries in Asia and also in South America and in, in parts of Africa, and the United States is doing the same. India, on the other hand, which actually has the largest vaccine manufacturing capacity in the world, was unable to meet the demand for their own country, you know, in the period of uh, March to May this year. And so uh, all the countries that were relying on Indian supplies, which was most of South Asia and parts of Africa, are having trouble giving their second dose because they haven't been able to get their supply. So, Do you think in the decades leading up to this pandemic, there's been an increased shift towards globalisation? We don't manufacture everything we need here anymore. We import a lot more. Do you think the pandemic will do anything to dampen that spirit of globalisation? I don't know, you know, but really that that is one of the lessons. That was your first question. That is one of the lessons. Every country that has the means, obviously, you know, very small nations may not have the means, but for countries that have the means, having domestic manufacturing capacity is really important. We saw the United States fall over in terms of personal protective equipment because they were getting all their supplies from overseas, they ran out very quickly and, you know, lots of health workers died because they had to go to work in cloth masks that they'd made themselves because there was nothing else for them. But we, we saw a smaller a smaller version of that happen in the 2009 pandemic where domestic manufacturing was ramped up, but those companies that stepped up in 2009 and started making PPE um, were not supported to stay competitive in the intervening 10 years so they had folded again, you know, by the time the pandemic came. And, the, you know, in terms of the US, they didn't invoke the Defence Production Act, which they did this year, but last year they didn't. So they were really stuck without that manufacturing capacity. We saw at, right at the beginning, you know, drugs like thyroxine, which is needed by a lot of people all over the world. A lot of the supplies were coming from um, 
China and India and maybe some of the precursors were coming from China for drugs being manufactured in India and so drug supplies were cut you know there were shortages of certain drugs early last year after the pandemic started so I think all countries that have the means should invest in domestic production capacity it's good for their own economies to invest in sustainable manufacturing of essential medical supplies and that maybe that's one of the key lessons for the pandemic going forward. In one of the interviews of yours that I read, you said, through my work in bioterrorism, I suppose I've been aware of all the different and serious existential threats to society, and I don't have an overly optimistic view of humankind and where we're heading. Can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts were in in that quote? And if if Rainer, if if it was an off-the-cuff quote that you said a while ago, you don't have to answer it, we can move on. No, that still holds. You know, I mean, I've been working in the field of bioterrorism, biological warfare, prevention of it, detection of it, you know, mitigation of it since um, really since 2005. So quite a while I've been thinking about these issues. I've had interactions with people in defence and police who are interested in this kind of field. So I've got an understanding of things from a broader perspective than just a health-centric perspective. And, you know, the truth is that biosecurity is very much like cybersecurity in that the technology has just gone ahead in leaps and bounds over the last decade particularly, but even before that, in a way that our, our systems and our ways of thinking about it and our ways of regulating it are not fit for purpose. They're still stuck in the last century and the technology has just raced ahead. I mean, you can do a do-it-yourself lab pretty easily, just like you can make a meth lab in your backyard, so too can you make a do-it-yourself bio lab. Um, The range of nefarious actors that could, you know, get their hands on lab-in-a-box type kits or set up labs to do gain-of-function research and existentially threatening biological research has vastly expanded. And there's also been a kind of convergence of different technologies that has really enabled this kind of dangerous research, which includes the convergence of cyber technologies and big data technologies, which means that different actors can actually work across areas that were traditionally siloed in the past, like organised crime, terrorism, warfare. And, you know, without going into a lot of detail, if somebody wanted to perpetrate an act, say, say it was a nation state or some other group, You could do it in ways that you could really hide the trail as to who the real perpetrator was through all these new technologies that have really enabled uh, crime and new ways of warfare. So in in warfare, for example, there's a term called grey zone threats, which is areas that are not physical warfare. So it's not bombs and, and machine gun fire, but it's ways in which hostile states can enact war on another country that's very grey and more difficult to pinpoint and identify. So that includes information warfare, things like Cambridge Analytica, you know. Um, It includes cyber warfare. It includes biological warfare. Um, And most biological warfare in the past has never been picked as unnatural. You know, we're pretty bad at it in health and public health. You know, we just assume everything's natural. And if anyone tries to suggest it's not natural, um, there's huge resistance. And we've seen that play out through COVID-19, right? The initial people uh, suggesting that there was an unnatural origin to this pandemic were shouted down quite aggressively at the beginning. And that's kind of um, turned around a little bit this year after the US started investigating the possibility, but there's still a lot of resistance to the idea. But the truth is the technology is there. You know, it is so easy. You can edit a human embryo. 
you know, you can edit anything with DNA. It's it's relatively easy and it's, um, you know, it's like if, if you said, okay, I'm going to publish on the internet a, a method for hacking bank accounts. Do you think nobody's going to use that and hack someone's bank account? Of course it's going to be used. So when you publish gain-of-function research in open access journals, which means anyone can look at it, learn how to do it and replicate those methods and do the gain-of-function research in their own either clandestine or official lab, then um, of course somebody's going to use it. You'd have to be you know, living in a complete bubble or have some serious vested interest to deny that. It's interesting and it's like all technological advances I guess the law is always the last one to keep up but then also there's always that gap in perception and understanding in what people can do with the information that also is a time lag and takes time to catch up yeah on your bio you listed some of your expertise earlier on Rain I'm going to embarrass you for a minute Um, On your bio, you list 29 areas of expertise, including all of these expertises which have kind of are so top of mind at the moment for everybody, emerging infectious diseases, vaccination outbreaks, pandemics, travel and border control, bioterrorism, COVID-19 and precision harm. Now, I left out a whole bunch of them. Tell us a little bit about when this pandemic broke out, I imagine that you became, and I know you did because we saw you kind of uh, be the the voice of uh, reason and the, and the expert that was being asked to comment on the pandemic. As a scientist, as a woman scientist, how is that being thrown into the kind of centre of everything because your area of expertise was so on point for this pandemic? Well, at the beginning, I felt an obligation to respond to media requests, probably the first up to about May 2020. By that stage, then there were lots of other people, you know, doing media and I I sort of stepped back. I started saying no to things because I was more interested in doing the research that would help with the pandemic. And I'm pretty selective on what media I do now. I, I do say no to most things. I'll only do media now if I think I can say something that no one else is going to say or if I feel the topic is something really important that I can make a difference on. But I have to say, um, you know, when you're a non-white woman, you're subject to a different threshold of acceptability of the things you say to, say, a white man. And I've been, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people kind of, people like me in the media because they understand what I'm saying. When you've got so-called experts who are out there who actually don't know what they're talking about but they're happy to just talk, then people don't understand what they're saying because they themselves don't understand. Um, So that's why people like me is because I do understand what I'm talking about and it comes from an absolute breadth and depth of of relevant knowledge, um, which is just the, uh, the circumstances of my career and things I've done in my career but you know and I've I've been unafraid to speak truth to power and just you know I've all I always what I say is always about what's in the best interests of the population and public health and that's not always a popular message so um, I've been attacked a lot by um, you know politicians and other people in a way that you don't see white men get getting attacked you know it's interesting to even see the way I'm talked about in the media and uh, often there'll be some other person, a, a white man and myself, and I'll be ju- just referred to as Rhina McIntyre. And 
the other person will be referred to as professor so-and-so. I've, I've noticed that for decades, you know, I've been doing media for decades. It doesn't really bother me, but when you're being written about in a hostile way, the sort of disrespect from certain parts, it's just, it's astounding, the level of disrespect and uh, when you get attacked. Fortunately, I've got a very thick skin, so because, and I'm super confident in what I know. You know, I'm not a pseudo expert. I actually do know what I'm talking about, and I don't talk about things I don't know about. So uh, I've got that confidence of knowing that I'm right when I speak about things. It's not right, though, is it? Because even in my research, I saw some of the trolling that you've been subject to. It, it's not right that women are subject to that. The Superstars of STEM program found a number of years ago that when the media calls on experts, STEM, scientists, researchers, doctors, anyone involved in STEM, that only 14% of the time were they calling on women. And I think that number is a few years old, so perhaps through the Superstars of STEM program it's increased a little bit. But can you talk us through some of the barriers that you've, structural and otherwise, that you've faced in the STEM field for women and then also for women of colour because I think they're perhaps amplified when you have something else to add to that, the gender diversity, the more layers of diversity you add, the more amplification perhaps there is. Well, you know, I think it's definitely, you know, when you're successful and you're not a white man, you're resented a lot more. Uh, and there's a lot of efforts to pull you down and um, and to also elevate people who are not as qualified. I call it whitewashing, which is where um, there's huge efforts put into making you invisible and um, elevating people around you that um, are nowhere near as qualified. How have you dealt with that when that's happened? Like we talk a little bit on this podcast about where people's resilience comes from, you know, whether it comes from something deep internally or how do you deal with that? Yeah, fortunately for me, I'm not ego-driven, so I don't actually care. I care about the research I do, about making a difference. And like I said, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm confident in what I'm doing because I've got the track record and the you know, I've been doing research through the whole pandemic. I've got, you know, a huge number of publications in the field and that's that's the focus for me. So I think a lot of, I've noticed in my career that a lot of people spend a lot of time watching others and coveting things that they don't have and it's just a waste of time. There's no point looking at other people and coveting. That's not the pathway to success. It's not by copying other people or trying to be other people or obsessively watching and feeling jealous about other people. That's ridiculous. Someone else's success has no bearing on your success. You know, be happy for other people's success and just follow your own pathway. That's my advice to young people, you know, follow your own pathway and stick to your guns in terms of what you believe in. A lot of people get swayed by what the flavour of the month is, you know. They'll go from being an expert in, you know, malaria to suddenly being a COVID expert which is you know we've seen that through the pandemic like lots of underfunded parts of infectious disease research suddenly there's an opportunity with COVID everyone's suddenly a COVID expert but they don't actually have the requisite knowledge in all the relevant areas so we've seen that kind of phenomenon during the pandemic. We had um, Michaela Jade on a few weeks ago and she obviously involved in STEM and um, digital technology and she was saying that her daughter, a teenager, was still being discouraged to not take science as subjects and not be involved in science. Clearly, it's still happening. 
how do we get more young girls and what are the things that you think we can do to get more young girls to see themselves as scientists and researchers and mathematicians and doctors and engineers and to actually break down those stereotypes? I think they need the role models, they need mentoring programs, they need, you know, but it goes right down to school, you know, primary school, um, high school. They need to have those role models in primary school among their teachers, you know. Um, Teachers are so important. They're so influential in people's lives. You know, you have one bad teacher who, you know, destroys your confidence in something and it can really affect the pathway down which you go. So I think going, we need to go right back to, you know, primary school education, etc., and um, make sure we have things in place all the way through. But you've got to have the political will and the commitment and, you know, sadly the political cycle here is just three years, you know, so those kind of long-term goals are not goals of politicians. So what made you, as a young girl, did you want to be a scientist? Uh, no, no. I Actually, when I was about 15, I thought I wanted to be a policewoman because I was interested in justice, you know, justice and making things better, and I thought that was <laughs> a good profession. Then when I was about to leave, you know, when I was doing my HSC, I thought I wanted to be an artist. I did art in high school and I was really good at it, and um all my friends in my art class were going to art school and I really wanted to, but I I always had it in my mind that I had to look after myself. You know, I wasn't brought up to think just marry a good man, who a rich man who'll look after you. I was brought up to think that I had to look after myself. I had to fend for myself, you know, develop my own career. And so uh, I thought I'll never be able to make a living as an artist, but I was interested in people, in um, sort of making a difference. So medicine was the the next choice and that's how I got into medicine. And then at what point during your career did you make that shift to working in in the research area of medicine? It was very gradual. Um, I was actually really a good clinician um, and I enjoyed it very much but I was uh, halfway through my physician training I was always interested in epidemiology. I'd heard about it but I didn't know much about it and I saw this ad for the Master of Applied Epidemiology at ANU, which is our field epidemiology training program, so outbreak response training. And I applied for it, got into it. And uh, at that point, I intended to come back and do cardiology because I was very interested in cardiology. I I thought I wanted to be a cardiologist. But then um, the Master of Applied Epi, I was placed in the health department in Victoria and we did outbreak response, you know, and I I did some of the most amazing um, field work there where we we used to, it was a central, it's it's a centralised public health system, what was at the time, and so everything was command and control. So if there was an outbreak in a country town, two of us would get in a car, a government car, and go off and investigate it. Sometimes we'd have to stay a few days in a country town and investigate this outbreak, etc., Sometimes there were outbreaks in nursing homes. I mean, that was my first exposure to nursing home outbreaks. Um, and I've worked in that area ever since, actually, and did all kinds of really interesting outbreak investigations. And I just loved it so much. I knew that was what I wanted to do. And then I just enrolled in a PhD straight after that. And I finished my physician training. But by the time I finished the PhD, I knew I wanted to do this was the direction I wanted to go in. Yeah. I think, Raina, there's obviously a lot to um, learn from and value in your journey. But one of the things, listening to you speak, one of the things I find so refreshing is that you have a confidence about what you're good at and you're not scared to say it. So you've said during this conversation, I was good at art, I'm good at what I do. I think so many women, myself included, don't do that. 
we shy away from telling people actually what we're good at. Did you grow up with that in the family or did you develop that, do you think? Um, no, it's absolutely true. You know, women don't promote themselves the way that men do and I, I don't, you know, I don't promote myself the way I see male colleagues around me doing it with far less to boast about. On the other hand, you know, if I'm put in a position where my um, knowledge or credentials to be talking about stuff is questioned, I've got no problem, you know, <laughs> saying, saying, uh, telling people the truth about what, you know, my, my credentials are. I'm uh, reading Julia Banks' book at the moment, which is really fascinating reading, and in there she quotes Helen Mirren, who was asked for what her life advice was, and her life advice to young women is two things, don't be as polite and say F you more often. You know, it's that saying, apologising for asking for something, saying I'm just wondering or, and, you know, we're all guilty of it. We all do it. Um, we need to be, we need to back ourselves more. I think it is true in terms of work and career. I'm much less likely to ask for help. Um, but then I am also from my observations of a career that's, you know, more than 30 years in the making and having had a lot of people working for me as well, there's a huge spectrum of ability of people. And I learned that fairly early on when I started managing people that you can't expect everyone else to work to the same capacity and standard as you do because not everyone has the ability. So you've got to quickly understand what people's capacity is and and then tailor what your expectations to their capacity. Um, so I learned that pretty early on. Um, but I also learned that my capacity for work and for juggling multiple um, things is probably much greater than most people's. But I think women in general, through having children and taking on most of the household responsibilities in, in the average family, no matter how enlightened you're partner might be, um, women generally do get very good at multitasking and juggling lots of different priorities, whereas I think men are must, much less able to do that. I think men are also much less asked to do that. You know, the assumption isn't that men will do it. I mean, nobody ever considers that a man won't come back to work after having children, whereas it is an assumption, it is, you know, still assumed for many women that, you know, they don't want the choice, which is dreadfully sad, really. Raina, I imagine that you mentor so many young women. What is your advice to young women today as they choose their careers, as they come through at all different stages? Do you have a piece of advice that even a mentor shared with you that is, you've kept close all these years? Um, there's different kinds of advice. So some of it I've already mentioned, which is to just follow your own path and don't try to be someone else and don't waste your time you know, comparing yourself to other people. I've also, I always um, impress upon people the importance of honesty and trust that, you know, for me, you know, if I, people on my team, I tell everyone on my team as soon as they come on that trust is more important to me than um, competence or, or um, efficiency. I can tolerate a bit of inefficiency as long as someone's trustworthy, you know, that trust is the number one thing. And and I also, one thing I've learned is not to give second chances you know, if someone lets you down, betrays you, stabs you in the back, you're not going to be able to change that person. You, you'll just save yourself a lot of pain by cutting them loose. So I, I tell that too to people now um, who come on board that they won't get second chances, not for stuff like betrayal or of trust and um, for little things, obviously, and for, you know, life, life circumstances, obviously. But when I say second chance, if someone 
you know, in re- research is a cutthroat business, you know, people steal ideas, they plagiarise from others. You're talking about values-based decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if anyone's sort of playing on another team uh, when they're supposed to be on my team, um, they don't get a second chance. And I let them know that up front and a few people have learned the lesson the hard way. I think if you're up, if you're up front about all of that stuff, that's setting expectations too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, the people who, are, who have proved themselves, you know, I, I go to extreme lengths to support them and help them grow their careers and find opportunities for them and find funding for them, et cetera. Today, I'd tell people to think twice about a career in research because the future for research in Australia, medical research, is not looking great. You know, university sector in general is decimated following the pandemic, but um, the investment in research is is pretty poor in Australia. And um, it's really incredibly hard. There were a couple of years there when early career researchers couldn't get a postdoctoral fellowship. They made a mistake in the way they structured it. So you had very senior people with sort of, you know, 80 to 100 publications applying for the very lowest level postdoctoral fellowship and people who were right out of a PhD with excellent track records relative to opportunity didn't have a chance. So um, I think that the, there's a huge gap for early career researchers in Australia. We're investing too much in people at the top end. And in, in a generation's time, we're going to pay the price for that. You know, it's a big mistake. And again, it comes down to the political cycle. But I think compared to other countries, we, we just don't invest enough in, in uh, research. So I, I you know, in, in the infectious diseases field, I advise people now to, to snap up any jobs that come up in you know, um, the government sector in, in health departments and so on, because there's a need right now, there's a chance to get in. It's better paid than being being at a university. I was going to ask you, actually, does a, is a net effect of that that we're pushing our researchers overseas? Absolutely. I remember a few years ago, before the pandemic, there was a young woman who'd won an ARC fellowship of some kind. Was Maybe it was a laureate or a decra or something. I can't remember. But she turned it down and went to the US because she, because she specifically said the opportunities were just so limited here. Um, but there's also, you know, I mean, I think also it's true to say there's been a quite a hostile attitude to universities from the government. It's like people in universities were not given JobKeeper last year. You know, we didn't have the international students coming. Thousands of people lost their jobs, you know, thousands um and you know good people lost their jobs in universities and this is the future of our country you know education is the third largest contributor to our economy after coal and mining you know the students who come they don't just bring revenue to the universities they they go to the cafes and the restaurants they rent you know the rental market collapsed because of the loss of students the whole impact was felt in the economies so i don't know you know, what sort of economic knowledge these people have who are sort of trashing universities, but uh, things are not looking good at the moment until that attitude changes and the investment in universities and research changes. Well, Raina, I have to say that I feel better knowing that we've got your expertise to draw on and that the government has you to draw on. So thank you on behalf of everybody listening for the input you've had over the last 18 months into making our response to the pandemic better. We are all better for it. Thanks, Shirley. It's been a pleasure and good luck. 
Raina McIntyre has become a familiar face in many of our living rooms over the last 18 months. Her extensive expertise across so many relevant areas continues to be drawn upon as we traverse the COVID pandemic. Professor McIntyre's confidence in her own expertise is so refreshing, but I still found it confronting when she spoke about the subtle ways in which she faces discrimination, both when called upon in the media and generally in her field. It is clear that real structural and unconscious biases still exist for women entering STEM today, and it remains incumbent on all of us to challenge those biases and stereotypes and encourage more women and young girls to enter STEM-related disciplines. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to those people like Professor McIntyre, who have given so much of themselves in the last 18 months to help us all navigate this pandemic. This episode is dedicated to them and their incredible service. Thank you for sharing this time with us today. For those of you in lockdown, stay safe and stay well. It's not easy, so please look after yourself. The Leadership Lessons podcast is produced by the very talented Alison Ho. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. Have a great week. Until next time, see you soon. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.